Yeah, so we've got a pretty thorough like standardized testing battery that we take the athletes through and for each of those tests we have benchmarks that are position specific. So talking about some of those like secondary and tertiary training qualities, we're going to assess the athlete's lower body strength. So that can be via isometric midside pull or through a back squat, 1RM. We look at their leg power with a, with a jump shrug and a counter movement jump. We look at leg stiffness with drop jump testing. And then we also look at their mobility with table testing and, and some screening that we, we can do like a, a couch stretch against the wall, things like that. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Nathan Kiley. He's currently the rehab and speed coach of the Brisbane Broncos. And our key topic of today's chat will be all about speed development for NRL athletes. So if you're an athlete listening in or perhaps a parent of a younger athlete that needs to get faster or wants to get faster, and of course, high-performance staff, make sure to hit us up with some questions in the comments section and stick around. There will be 10 questions at least on this topic, so you'll walk away with some real gems. But welcome, Nathan. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Looking forward to this chat. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For those that aren't aware of your work, mate, do you mind providing a background on how you got into the industry, why you're sort of passionate about it, so how you sort of fell in love with it and the different roles you've done over the last few years? Yeah, I guess best place to start is to start. So yeah, like I finished school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, spent a few years doing different bits and pieces and I was always a really keen cricketer myself and I, I did play a bit of rugby in that at school, but I, cricket was sort of my passion as, as a uh, a wannabe athlete, I suppose, and I, I really liked training and I wanted to be best cricketer I could be. And it wasn't until I was probably maybe 21, 22 that I sort of started to find some good information on training online. And I kept seeing all these people who were providing this information and they were strength and conditioning coaches who worked in elite sport. And I didn't really know that, that was a thing that you could do. So upon stumbling upon that, I thought, wow, this is actually really cool. Like I was really passionate about training and uh, learning about it. I found really exciting and the idea that you could do it for a job sort of leapt out to me. So I, I started to pursue that, went to university, did my undergraduate degree at the University of Technology in Sydney. I went on to do an honours project there that was related to cricket. Um, we did some biomechanics and performance testing on a bunch of fast bowlers. I was really lucky that opened a door for me at Cricket New South Wales where I got my first full-time job. So I worked in cricket for three and a half years. While I was at uni and studying, I worked some other roles as well. So I started off with a, with an internship at the Newtown Jets, who are a New South Wales Cup rugby league team. I also d did an internship at Newington College. They're one of the sort of big, big rugby schools in Sydney. So I was able to get a, a, a part-time role there where I worked with their rugby program. And then outside of that, I always found speed to be really interesting. So I approached a few different coaches and, and shadowed them for a while. And one in particular, a guy named Roger Fabree. I kept showing up to watch his sessions and eventually asked if I'd like to work for him. So that's where I sort of got my first, uh, I guess, casual job coaching speed with, with athletes one-on-one -on -one with nothing more than a stop watching cones and sort of applied my trade there. And yeah, so long story short, after three and a half years at cricket, I moved up, up to Brisbane to take up the rehab and, and speed coaching role here at the Broncos and sort of a year and a half into that now and, and loving it. It's, it's going great. Yeah, that's a great journey and, and something that the listeners, especially sports science students, can probably take away from in terms of finding a mentor early on that has a strong philosophy. How did you come to find Roger and build that relationship and start shadowing and then you know, be able to develop from him? Yeah, so he's one of many coaches that I just sent a, a cold message to, basically. I think the first time I heard his name was, I think I might have been doing my level two ASCA accreditation at, at N-Swiss there and David Boyle was one of the facilitators. I, th I think we did a, a module on speed development and I found it really interesting. It was something I was passionate about and I asked him, who, who do you think I might be able to speak to that could, could help me learn more and he, he gave me Roger's number. So I think I, I think I just gave him a call or something like that and asked if I can come and observe some sessions and, and he was very generous with his time and he's got a big heart, Roger. So he, he he really liked sharing and, and helping younger people who want to learn. Um, so he was great for me, mate. And I'd, I'd go down once or twice a week and 
and watch a couple of groups of, of his athletes train and that's where I, f- I first got a sense of how a speed session could flow with a group where the elements of a session can be put together some some practical tools that I could take away and start using myself and then yeah I mean I must have been there for four or five six months showing up once or twice a week and eventually yeah, well. Roger went this this kid's pretty keen and he, he wants to learn and and also I I just tried to help out where I could and ask questions and I think he sort of had, had a sense that he could sort of trust me and he had plenty of work coming his way plenty of young kids who, who want training and things like that so he had a couple of athletes that that he couldn't fit into his schedule so he asked me if I'd be interested in coaching them and that was sort of where I started there and back to Roger's sessions to keep learning and we, we'd often debrief on on the sessions he was running but I'd also ask him questions about things that I was working on with with the athletes that that I had and from there I, I then sort of developed that skill set of coaching speed and I ended up getting getting a role at the Sydney Roosters as well actually where I worked with their under 20s program primarily running the the speed and athletic development stuff on field working with a guy named Sam Kennedy there and I suppose that came off the back of him having a bit of face that I knew how to coach speed and, and take that field work so yeah that's kind of where, where it started out f- for me with with the speed side of things. It's, it seemed like picking a specific niche to really focus on like being a specialist I guess you could say with speed training early on in your career like definitely opened up some doors is that something you'd recommend if you're passionate oh. about it deal a topic? Yeah, I, I actually wouldn't say that I am a speed specialist. Like I, I feel like I'm a generalist first and foremost. So I did do all of that stuff to learn about speed, but by the same token, so Sam Kennedy, who I work with at the Roosters, is an elite level weightlifter himself. So mm-hmm. I'd also go and train with him and learn how to perform the Olympic lifts and, and really get a sense of strength and power development, strength and power training and regressions and progressions and technique to, to get those lifts down pat. Probably gone through phases where I've heavily invested in certain topics but then I move on to a different topic and heavily invest in that because I, I want to have that broad skill set to be able to pick up any role well not necessarily pick up any role but be able to do any aspect of a role to, to the best of my ability so whether that's been speed development or Olympic weightlifting aerobic conditioning I went through a albeit brief phase where I tried to be a marathon runner <laughs> I only ended up running one of them but the process of actually training for a marathon and, and, and going and doing one and getting a sense of how effective like aerobic capacity work is, that really gave me a better understanding of, of how you can develop that in your athletes. And that's something I would encourage young coaches to do is to definitely go and practice the things that you want to learn how to coach and invest in particular topics quite heavily for a period of time. You really need that density behind that area to sort of go through the trials and tribulations and learn your way through it so that you can then empathize with your athletes and understand the fixes for errors along the way for them as well. Yeah, on that topic in terms of coaches practicing on themselves, when you were seeing Roger and shadowing sessions and then also running sessions for him, were you behind the scenes practicing those drills, so drilling and, and sessions by yourself or was Roger giving you feedback actually coaching you and same with Sam with Olympic lifts because they're quite technical lifts where you're getting feedback like being an athlete for a period of time there and getting yeah, a coach, or you need to practice on yourself. I, I'd say I'm self-taught, but heavily influenced by them. I never got them to coach me or program for me. I wanted to try and figure it out myself, and that's the way I learn. I don't necessarily think that's the right way for everyone, but I mean, I've never really been coached on anything like really, really well. I've I've never felt like I've had a coach teach me stuff really well. But going through the process of trying to teach myself is where. I feel like I've had to troubleshoot and problem solve, which has allowed me to have a what I think is a really thorough understanding of the entire process. And along the way, I've always sought knowledge and looked for advice, but never really had someone telling me exactly how or what I should be doing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and we've probably touched on a fair few already, but who, have, who else have been some strong influences, mentors, if you like, that have shaped your philosophy today? Yeah, there's been a lot. Early on, obviously, we've already mentioned Roger. When I was at the Newtown Jet as an intern, there's a fellow that, that was working there at the time named Graham Morris, who's heavily influenced me. He's a very good friend of mine to this day. He's now in a similar role to me at the West Tigers. At Newington College, where I was working with, with those high school age athletes, Nathan Parnham ran the program there at the time. He's up in Brisbane now. Uh, again, another really good friend of mine uh, to this day. But those guys early on not only taught me a lot, they really helped shape me as a person, I would suggest, because I was, I was a bit younger back then and looking for 
for guidance on on career directions and things like that. So they they really helped me. Also been influenced by other coaches that I've probably worked alongside as I got further through my career. There's a there's a, a, a guy at Cricket New South Wales named Ross Herridge who really helped me understand the importance of the relationships and the communication that you have with athletes, particularly in a sport like cricket, where you're kind of working with individual athletes in a team setting. So trying to figure out what makes each of them tick and what motivates them and how they respond to the way that you communicate with them, all that sort of stuff. Since I've got up to Brisbane as well, like in this environment, I've been lucky to learn from our head of performance, Dave Ballard. And and last season, we had Dean Benton here as a consultant as well. So it was really cool to get some um, some high quality learnings from Dean and ways that we can improve our programming and make our training better. Over your career, what have been some significant highlights that sort of spring front of mind that you're, you're proud of? I'd say it's never really been about like winning things for me, but what I really find exciting, I suppose, is is when you see athletes take that next step and you feel like you've been able to help them achieve their goals. So the classic example is seeing an athlete make their debut in first grade or make their make the step up to playing for their state or luckily I've, I've been able to work with a couple of athletes too who've been able to go on to play for their country. So to this day, if, if it's an athlete I work with in cricket or at high school level or whatever, when, when that happens, I get a real kick out of that and I always try and make sure I send them a message and give them, give them a congratulations and, and let them know that I've been sort of riding that ride with them and, and I'll continue to keep an eye out on, on their, their progress and I find that really rewarding and yeah, helping helping young people realize their dream i think that's that's pretty cool and on the flip side mate i've seen elite sport comes pressure at, at, at times uh, what have been some, some significant challenges that you faced along the way and how did you learn or what did you grow, how did you grow as a practitioner from those experiences i suppose like the the main one is just learning where that balance is in terms of when you can push and pull athletes and I think you're always sort of teetering on the edge with that one in terms of going too far in one direction or too far the other. It's a constant learning and it is is so individualized as well in terms of each athlete that you work with, finding out where that tipping point is for them. And what I've had to learn is how to develop better systems and processes to understand where athletes' limits are at sooner and narrow that bandwidth in terms of knowing where the limits are. The other thing I, I think is just the importance of like thorough planning and organization and Having, having systems and processes in place that are ready to go when you need them, particularly in an environment like this where things change so rapidly and your midfield session and someone's been pulled out for whatever reason, now they need a cross-training session and you've got these parameters that you need to target and you've got to be ready to go. So having things ready and organised, ready to go, makes a really big difference in terms of allowing you to make the athlete experience more seamless so that they're not sitting around waiting for you to sort out what, what you want to do with them and, and also getting those training adaptations that they need. Awesome. Well, we'll dive into the key topic, mate. Like I mentioned, you're, you're passionate about speed and I'm sure most of the listeners will be as well, either from an athletic perspective or for coach. But from your point of view, what are the key components of speed development for NRL athletes? I think the, the main thing that often gets overlooked is actually sprinting like that's primarily going to be the thing that makes an athlete fast is is practicing the the task itself once you get that in place then it becomes about having a systemized approach to develop all the key components that underpin running competency so the running skill itself and those are going to be things like lumbopelvic control leg stiffness the ability to switch the limbs rapidly in space those are sort of going to underpin your, your speed qualities. And then beneath that, you've got like a foundation that's built on sort of your secondary and tertiary training methods that target your leg power and your leg stiffness and mobility and, and all those other aspects, your general qualities. I'd say those are probably like the, the key components of how we filter down in terms of deciding what needs to be worked on in our speed program here. I imagine it's probably different for most athletes, but what are some key things that you sort of take into account when you're assessing an athlete and what type of program to give them and how important speed is in terms of like things like positions they play and their age and yeah, their physical qualities? Yeah, so we've got a pretty thorough like standardised testing battery that we take the athletes through and for each of those tests, we have benchmarks that are position specific. So 
talking about some of those like secondary and tertiary training qualities, we're going to assess the athlete's lower body strength. So that can be via isometric mid-thigh pull or through a back squat, 1RM. We look at their leg power with a, with a jump shrug and a counter movement jump. We look at leg stiffness with drop jump testing. And then we also look at their mobility with table testing and, and some screening that we, we can do like a, a cap stretch against the wall, things like that. Obviously, those are those secondary qualities, but primarily the most important thing is what their actual sprint ability is. So we, we do sprint testing on day one of preseason. Around that as well, I also do regular sort of embedded assessments of kinematic and temporal components of their sprinting through video analysis. So every week when we do a speed session, I get, get the the iPhone out, we, we take a standardized video capture and we run an AI software over that that allows us to determine stride length, stride frequency, flight time, ground contact times, joint angles at different phases of the sprint cycle and things like that. And we're able to monitor that long term. We can use that to identify athletes' strengths and weaknesses, whether they've got a, a rate limiting factor for improving their performance. And then that can help us design and, and tailor those training interventions that are targeted at each individual athlete. And, and how does that look in terms of the programming side of things? It sounds like you're you know, managing the speed and then also working in conjunction with the rehab. But does that mean if someone's identified that they need a more speed work, you'll program their strength and power as well? Or how does it sort of all work within the team? Yeah, it's going to depend on each particular case by case. So for instance, we might have an athlete who we know needs to get faster, but we look at their standardized testing, we look at their benchmarking and they just don't have enough leg power to begin with. So our strength and power program is probably the best tool to improve those qualities that's going to make them faster on the field. Vice versa, if we've got an athlete who's got all the physical qualities there but has a technical issue, then I'm going to do some extra work with them on the field. And what we'll typically do is at the end of our main training day, I'll do some extra technical top-ups with that player where we're just working over shorter distances or using drilling and things like that that's a bit safer just because of the fatigue that they'll have in them after training. But we're able to use it as like a skill acquisition session where we're sort of doing a lot of active coaching with them, giving them feedback and trying to get them to work on specific goals that feed into the sprint technique. You've got other elements. So mobility, for instance, that could be simply just making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm helping those boys prep for each field session with some PNF stretching, some partner stretching, or giving them a mobility exercise, or something that feeds into improving that aspect of their of, the, of their mobility, so that they're best prepared to get into the positions that we need them to get into on the field. Um, since you've been at the Broncos, where would you be prescribing most athletes that need to focus on? Yeah, since since you've been there, has it been more mobility deficits or the strength and power side of things, technical proficiency? Oh, I mean, it's always going to be a combination of all those things. So we generally try and attack all those areas and we just emphasize a little bit of one or the other based on individual needs. And to be honest, for probably 70 to 80% of the athletes, the general program is, is appropriate. It's more when we identify, say, speed as a rate limiting factor for them and their performance that we then sort of delve a little bit deeper and figure out what, what they need in terms of individualized interventions. And from, for those that aren't working in an elite program, what do you think would be some common mistakes that athletes are work, you know, commonly making when they're trying to improve their speed by themselves, perhaps? Yes, yeah, there's probably a few things. The first is a lack of intensity in their sprint efforts, and that's usually a consequence of insufficient recovery. So if you're trying to develop your speed and you're doing three, four, five, six 40 meter sprints, for instance, on just a walk back recovery from rep three onwards, you're going to have so much fatigue in the system that you're just not going to be able to generate the outputs that drive the adaptations that you're looking for. So making sure you've got enough recovery between efforts is really important. I'd also say that for the most part, athletes don't really know how to organize a speed session. So they don't really have a system or a process, progressions, regressions. They don't really know what they should be doing in terms of content. As long as you are sprinting, you're half the way there, but all the other stuff, it does matter as well. And a lot of athletes probably struggle to understand what actually constitutes good running technique, and they've just sort of got a general sort of lack of directional per purpose in addressing any technical flaws when they're using drilling. So um, what I mean by that is, first, if, if we look at their understanding of technique, I see a lot of athletes who become quite robotic in their running when 
they start to think that they're improving their technique. Generally, this is not a good thing. Elite and, and high-level sprinters are fluid and coordinated in their movement. They're not robotic. They're not rigid. So the classic example is the 90-90 elbow situation where the athlete gets really tight and rigid and, and locked up, and that's not conducive to good sprint performance at all. And then if secondary to that, we talk about the technical drilling side of things. I see a lot of drills done in a way that doesn't emphasize things that are going to transfer. And a really good example of that is like the common A-skip exercise. I see a lot of A-skips performed in a really passive manner, I suppose. I tend to try and coach A-skips with like a switching action, action where the athlete never has two feet on the ground at the same time. You can look up videos of this if you just look up like an A-skip switch online to understand the difference. But I think that makes a huge difference in terms of actually targeting things that are going to transfer to your sprint performance rather than just doing an exercise without this behind it, I suppose. In terms of a session flow, like you mentioned earlier in the show with first started seeing Rogers session plans, what were some sort of standout learnings in terms of what a successful speed session looks like, I guess, from a strength conditioning point of view? For, for those listening that may not have seen a, a track and field session or a speed session done in a lead environment. So what are your big rocks, I guess, when going into planning one? Yeah, it's definitely evolved over the years for me. The way I tend to organize it now is we will take a good 10 to 15 minutes to do some low-level prep before we even go out on the field. In that time, we'll be doing targeted mobility work, getting the hips nice and mobile. We'll We'll be doing some activation exercises that are targeting the lumbopelvic region. So having good control of the pelvis, good trunk integrity. And then we'll also just do some general sort of dynamic movements to raise the body temperature and things like that. Get blood flowing and yeah, in- increase, increase sort of that potentiation for the muscles to d- develop force later down the line. After that, we'll go out onto the field and we'll start off with some drilling. Over the, over the years, my drilling has gotten smaller and smaller in terms of the number of exercises I'll do and the number of reps I'll do on each of them. What I try and do now is use drilling to get my athletes warm to sprint as quickly as possible. So we're often under time pressure and also, to be honest, I don't think you need to spend half an hour doing drills. If you're doing drills with the right sort of drills, with the right sort of intention and high quality and intent behind them, you get everything out of them that you need. So an example of that could be some high knee cycle bleeds over 30 or 40 meters. We're working on the cyclical action of top speed running. We'll start off with the athlete moving at, at a slower velocity with, with a high frequency of turnover, and then they'll increase their horizontal movement velocity as they, as they cover distance, whilst their intention is to maintain that cycling action. And we can build them up over longer and longer distances, and, and we might finish off those at 80, 85% of top speed. And by that point, they're actually ready to then go and sprint. They might only need four or five reps of an exercise like that to to get warm. From there, we'll uh, perform any sprinting that they they need to do. And we program that on an individual basis in terms of what the player needs, what their normal sprint distances are in season, what they have and what they haven't done in the previous game or in the previous few weeks. And basically from there, we'll send them off on their merry way to get, get into their skills training. And in pre-season, do you have so days where you'll do mainly vertical sort of sprinting and then more your lateral agility type work, <laughs> sort of a little bit of both across your sort of three main sessions? Pre-season is a bit different, yeah. So we, we have two, well, the way we've did it this pre-season, for instance, was we had two sort of athletic development warm-ups, I suppose you could call them. The first one was an acceleration and agility session. So we've, we've got more time in that environment too. So that's where we're going to be using our resisted sprint training methods there. So similar sort of session flow, but we'll, we'll sort of finish with a rotation of heavy resisted sprints. And then another, another station will be some agility exercises. So reactive agility where the athletes are responding to game-like stimulus and having to solve movement problems. And then we'll bring all the athletes together and, and finish with some some sharp accelerations. And then on our other day, we've got our you know, our more top speed running day where we're looking to develop their their all out sprinting ability. It's a little bit position specific too. So our our forwards are generally going to be still doing that from an acceleration, whereas our outside backs will generally get them to perform those with with fly sprints or 
easier build-ups and, and get them to hold those top speeds for longer for both a, re- a resilience and robustness purpose, but also from a, uh, like a performance aspect. For those that are injured athletes and perhaps aren't able to sprint at the current stage of their rehab, what are some good sort of supplementary exercises or drills that you like to do either on the field or in the gym so that when they're ready to integrate into sprinting, they're robust enough? It's actually it's quite a complicated question because it can depend on specifically what the injury is that we're dealing with. I like to try and use drilling as much as I can to fill the gaps in what they can't do from a sprinting perspective. So, for instance, if we're dealing with, let's say, a hamstring injury, the athlete will still be able to do a lot of high-intensity drilling, get a lot of high-quality ground contacts, get that calf, ankle, foot complex loaded in a similar way that we would to, to sprinting as per normal. We can also do a fair bit of change direction work with a hamstring injury because the hamstring isn't going to be fully activated until you've got sort of higher velocities or a lot of intent behind a linear acceleration. So we can work on shuffling patterns and and cuts and changes of direction in tighter spaces quite easily. Oftentimes we've in our environment we've we've had guys who've got shoulder reconstructions and things like that, and they they lack the ability to swing their arm with freedom. So we'll have to constrain their arm action and do the best we can to get them running fast without arm swing. So that can be a challenge at times. Essentially, we just get them to cross their arms or hold a footy out in front and do the best that they can. But yeah, it's really going to be case by case in terms of what the injury is that we're dealing with, what that which tissue is affected by that injury, but also which tissues are not affected. And the tissues that aren't affected, we can target. We try and develop them as best we can whilst working around the, the injured tissue. And with working with rugby athletes and You've sort of identified that on a drop jump that the the plyometric ability is something you want to focus on for the heavier set athletes. Like how do you sort of get that work in without, I guess, overloading them from doing your plyometrics? By case again here in terms of we'll we'll look at the athletes' jumping competency, I suppose, in terms of are the jump plyometrics exercises that we're giving them in the gym providing them a challenge? Um, in terms of is there a risk of failure built into the exercise that they're they're trying to do. We we want to try and challenge them with something that there's consequences for. So having a hurdle that they've got to get over or having a ground contact time that they've they've got to try and be under. We start quite conservatively conservatively from a volume perspective and we just apply principles of progressive overload. But then we are also looking at their injury history, having conversations with the athletes. I've got some athletes who are very athletic, but they've got a history of an ACL injury, for instance, where they've had a patella tendon graft and therefore they, they struggle with, with jump loading because it stirs up their patella tendon. So we have to modify their jumps. And in that case, we'll generally try and focus more on long ground contact jumps as opposed to short ground contact jumps. And basically just do the best we can to try and keep them strong and robust in, in the, the affected tissue. Uh, what we've found is that actually general leg power is probably one of the strongest correlates to our sprint performance with, with our, our guys. So a counter-movement jump is actually a better predictor of, of our athletes' sprint, sprint times than something like RSI. probably gives me a little bit of faith that just because they can't do really advanced plyometrics, it's not the end of the world. As long as we're getting them to sprint regularly, we're building their sprinting skill set and we're getting some good general leg power development into them, then we tend to see really good results with that. Sure. Yeah, thanks for that. A thorough answer, and like you said, yeah, it is complicated because there's no case specific case study there, but I think there's some good value there for the listeners. Well, you mentioned just being mindful of volume and probably perhaps starting on the conservative side and then building in once you build, but you get to know the athlete and how they're tolerating the sessions. Would that be, you know, one session a week, so frequency that you sort of, or is it one less sessions and just keeping account of your contact times across the we, week? We, we tend to only really do jump or plyometric training once a week. In our environment, in pre-season, we'll have two days where we do different types of stuff, but really it's only one day with short ground contact work. We also try and organize it so that it, we, we're conscious of loading and then having the tendons cool down and then reloading them again on the same day. So we, in pre-season, for instance, we'll try and do all our jumps and pliers on the field. Later in season, as the total volume comes down, we can then do them in the gym. But yeah, like we'll, for instance, we're starting off a new block with an example exercise might be a hurdle jump, continuous hurdle jumps. We might start off with two to three sets of, of four or five continuous hurdle jumps, and that might be a starting point. And have you used different sort of surface surfaces, whether it be like a blue a gymnastics mat and 
or you know, and work your way up to a harder surface, or is it more just modifying the the volume and building up progressively overloading in that way? Yeah, we we use it. We've got a track in our gym that's somewhere between very harm, very hard, and not very hard. So that's a good place for us to to jump. We've we've also got like a, a judo mat that I'll sometimes get guys to do more advanced plyometrics on initially because it does just take a little bit of of the the spice out of it to get them used to the exercise, give them a chance to coordinate it and things like that to begin with. And while I am aware that it's dampening their ground contact times, if it allows them to then accumulate more volume, it's probably actually got a net benefit for them in terms of the adaptations that we'll get out of that. In an ideal world, like the best thing would be for them to do really advanced plyometrics on concrete, but like they're there's so much load that they've got to deal with already with all their football skills, conditioning, speed work, etc. Having having a really hard surface and advanced plyometrics, it's just not for everyone. So, yeah, there, there might be a couple of guys who could handle that. Yeah, it's 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 not something that you you throw out to the whole group. And for, for NRL athletes, which I guess transfers over to in some sense soccer and and football, so team based athletes, like, are you mainly focusing on their ability to get to top speed quicker, or is it improving their actually improving their ability to get top speed, so improving their max velocity, or is it a bit of both? Uh, so with our with our forwards, it's very much an acceleration-based program. Mm-hmm. Our backs, it's probably more hybrid, where, where we look at both ends of the spectrum. Our forwards, it's, it's all about trying to maximise their sprint momentum, essentially, like we need them to be as fast as possible at 10 metres whilst being a large body. Like that's, that's what's going to allow them to win collisions. That's still relevant for our backs, but they also the, the position also demands that they're able to be effective in open space and, and finish opportunities off for us. So we need to make sure that they're, they've got the skills required to run fast, and it is a skill. They're, there are some athletes that they don't do it often enough, and when they find themselves in that situation, they trip over themselves or they're, they're unable to execute skills whilst running fast or they, they drop the footy because they whack it on their leg. Like that stuff does happen. So putting them in those environments regularly it just allows them to be comfortable there and and gives them the confidence to execute skills and things like that they need to be familiar with that environment development point of view you've mentioned obviously learning off the likes of guys like dean benton and how do you find sort of the latest research influences your decision making or methodology is that you know you don't have to put a percent on it but is it sort of 10 percent compared to practitioners or and learning on the job or is it pretty significant I do read a lot of research, but I don't know how much of it immediately influences my practice. Every now and then, something will pop up that'll change the way we do things. I'll give you a recent example. Was So, Martin Boucher's got a recent paper about timing and distribution of, of when sprint training or sprint exposure occurs during an in-season training week and the relationship with soft tissue injuries that then happen in games. And, and he showed that actually sprinting later in the training week or with greater proximity to, to the next game, reduced the likelihood of, of soft tissue injuries, which is probably counterintuitive for me. I probably used to organise things differently, but that, that changed the way we, we programmed things. Like sprint the day before, potentially sprint like a prime <laughs> session the day before? Not quite that, but yeah, I mean, the way we organise things is typically we'll have like a team captain's run the day before, but there's no real physical components there. Minus two is a day off for us. And then most rugby league teams in the NRL will have their main training days on a minus three and minus four. So four days and three days before the game. Mm. Uh, we used to do speed on a minus four, so four days away from the game. But this season, we now do it on a minus three. And that allows us to use what happened on the minus four to inform how we then do speed. So we can identify which players ran yesterday really quickly in, the, in normal skills and they might not need as much as other players then sort of allows us to meet each player where they're at and based on some of that research we're um, we're pretty confident that actually that's a safer way to organize the training than what we might have previously thought yeah awesome and how do you go about keeping up to date with the research is that being just just looking you know doing your own research on certain topics that you're passionate about at the time or is there certain pages or groups that you're a part of where there's a feed there and that sort of acts as a bit of a reminder I, i Personally, I find Twitter to be really useful for finding research. If you if you follow the right people, there's 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 a whole little world of sprint related and sports science research that's floating around, and people people share new new papers as they come out. So I'll, I'll tend to bookmark stuff and have a day where I sit down and 
get stuck into it and have a bit of a read. That's just what works for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm that's that's pretty much the only way that that I find new research. To be honest, in terms of the future of speed development, is there something currently that you you're exploring? and playing around with or, or where do you sort of see speed development going for NRL athletes over the next sort of three to five years? I think the technology is evolving rapidly. So like I mentioned before, we, we use some AI software to track what our athletes are doing from a kinematic and temporal perspective and being able to just cut a video and upload it and, and get a bunch of different data that provides objectivity. And that was on your phone, was iPhone? Yeah, so yeah, it's just just we just use our iPhones and the software takes 24 hours to process it and sends us back reports for each athlete, CSVs with all the data that we want to look at. And, and yeah, I can just track that longitudinally, look at changes for each individual. I can use it to show an athlete where they fit amongst the cohort. So I can, I can tell them, hey, listen, <clears throat> we know that this uh, element of technique is associated with running fast and you're not good at it relative to the rest of the group. So we think this is something that you can work on. We might give them an intervention. That might only be one exercise or one drill that they need to work on. We can then see if that works, if it transfers, if it improves that component of their technique for them. Does that then transfer to a better sprint performance? And we've then got something objective to measure that against. So I I see that as becoming a, a really big part of how speed gets coached. I think it's it's been quite a revelation for me. I reckon that's potentially the the biggest factor in terms of putting some numbers to to what we do i think previously it was a very arduous task to do that with a large group but now a lot of it's automated so i'm i'm able to yeah get get that sort of data on all of our players regularly yeah, that's awesome we'll have to is that a paid software we'll have to add the link in the what's it called the the app yeah so that's 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 view motion it's not an app yeah yeah i don't know how much they charge <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that. Uh, yeah, I, I know that Jonas Dodu uses ViewMotion for all of his oh, yeah. coaching stuff. So it's the same platform. Yep. We use it slightly differently to how he does, but that's the the main software that he uses, and, and we're using the same stuff here. And yeah, it's it's been it's been a really cool tool. Once you've filmed, like you've identified that, you've given feedback to that athlete. Would you film them every session and then show them a month to month apart the the differences they make, or how often are you sort of providing them that video feedback? Yeah. Most most weeks we'll get one one video capture from every athlete. So as sort of the, the last part of our speed session, we'll get a, a high quality twenty meter acceleration from each athlete that we capture on video. And for some individuals we'll also get a, a flying twenty meter sprint and, and then we can use that to yeah, sort of monitor all of those things we just spoke about. Thanks for sharing. Is there anything that we haven't discussed or or you'd like to share in terms of speed development for NRO athletes, Nate, before we jump into the last part of the show? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. Maybe <laughs> there. Well, if anything pops up, mate, feel free to jump in and, and go into it. But that was that was fantastic, mate. Thanks for, for providing some great stories, but also context into how you go about doing things. Um, you mentioned Twitter there. It's probably a good segue for the next part. You've built a, a strong brand online while also you know climbing the ladder and working elite sport. How have you sort of juggled the two for, for strength and conditioning coaches, I guess, that, that are starting out in the industry and might be finding that overwhelming, you know, building a brand, a business, but then also wanting to work in elite sports? So how do you sort of, how did you fall into the two, I guess, and how do you sort of stay on top of it? Oh, it's a good question. I, I made a conscious decision to put myself out there as a young, young coach and I wanted to be committed to that and stay consistent with it. I think on the whole, it's been a real net benefit for me. It's given me exposure to a lot of people and open doors at times. So I would encourage young coaches to do it. I've made mistakes with it as well. So I'm probably a little bit careful about what I share. It might be a bit vanilla at times, but people seem to find it really interesting. So I stick with it because it's, I think there's some usefulness to it. I probably treat it more today like a training video log of, of what I do with myself. I've always been a big believer in sort of using myself as a guinea pig for stuff. So I like to sort of document what I'm doing with myself and, and share that with people and try and offer a couple of little insights as to why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them um, and hopefully people can learn from that. I don't really know what the best strategy to it is or if I, I don't really even have a strategy. Like essentially what I've just described to you there is, is how I approach it. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's, it's definitely going to be case by case in terms of what the environment is that you're working in. I know, I know it's 
in in some environments. I think it's quite common in say American colleges, for instance, that strength coaches are actually encouraged to share what the athletes are doing. They use it as part of their recruiting tool, and and you get a lot of insights into what the athletes are doing day to day. For me, I feel a bit uncomfortable about that, so I, I tend to just yeah just to share what I'm doing. But yeah, that's it's a tricky one. I I don't know the answers, mate. Like. If someone wants to give it a go and, and just copy what I do, it might work for you. I don't know. <laughs> yep. Yep. And in terms of the, you mentioned off air that you've set up a, a passive income. Was that the plan you know, a few years ago to set something up, a bit of a side hustle to, you know, from a financial point of view, to top yourself up in elite sport? And if so, how have you sort of learned to sort of set up that online program and, and you know, build it to a point where it is automated? Yeah. So, I mean, I, why did I do it initially? Yeah, I, I wanted to get the wheels in motion for a secondary income and it's not something that I've gone all into but I wanted to have something started and it's in the position now where I don't necessarily have to do a great deal of work to keep it ticking over as, as it is at the moment. So those are probably the motivations for it and it gives me a bit of confidence that if for whatever reason I, I needed to upscale that, that a lot of the groundwork has already been laid. Mm. How I went about it was, so I use a platform that handles all of the financial transactions for me. They've got really, I mean, essentially they're the marketing component for it. They, they've got the template for, for how to design the landing page. They provide the platform that delivers the program. I did a bit of research to try and find the right one. And I also looked at what other coaches were doing. And I sort of looked at what was what looked to me like the best user experience as well. So what the end consumer would, would be using. And that's, yeah, that's how I landed on using Train Heroic. And I've been using that for a, a couple of years now. So I've got a few programs that I've designed for, for different sort of target audiences. And I suppose primarily off the back of my Instagram profile, I've marketed those and they all pretty regularly. And it's, it's pretty cool to have a little bit of extra cash coming in. It's it's not enough to live off. So that's it's not it's not completely revolutionized my financial situation or anything like that just yet. But I, I do think it's worth pursuing if, if you're a coach, yeah, to, to have the wheels in motion for something like that if, if you ever need to upscale it or go all in. Yeah. Yeah. And on that for for someone that's looking into it, what you mentioned learning from your mistakes early on. What what was some of those and what yeah, what are some areas that I guess coaches want to be mindful of if they are working elite sport and they want to manage their own brand or business. Yeah, I, th- I, I was probably pretty willing to share opinions that I hadn't earned the right to do so with when I was a bit younger. So I I tend to be a bit more vanilla now. Yeah, I think it's it's more about trying to add to conversations rather than take away from them. That's probably the way I now try to approach things. And yeah, I, I just try and sort of share insights and information that, that I, I find useful um, mm-hmm. and things that I think other people might find useful. Whereas in the past, yeah, I, I, I sort of wanted to get into debates and things like that. And whether you win a debate on Twitter with someone on the other side of the world or not, like it, who cares? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's probably not my style anymore. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it's not something that you've, you've been all in yet, but if the time ever comes, it, it's there ticking in the background. How did you get it to the point where you have, you know, you've got a fair bit of following on, on YouTube and, and on Instagram, I think you've got over 30,000 followers. Did that, has that come organically through, like you said, just sharing your insights and, or is there, are there some things that you were doing a couple of years ago that really spiked your, your following? I, the main thing is consistency. Like I, I try and post consistently and I've always done that. And yeah, I mean, I've slightly tweaked the formula of the stuff that I post over the years, but essentially it's diary of what I've been doing with my own training and every now and then something seems to resonate with a lot of people and get a fair bit of momentum behind it and the the growth has been organic on the back of that so yeah that's it's really just been the consistency with which I've posted and shared things that I think has allowed it to get to where it is at the moment yeah yeah no, it's great mate it's, it's inspiring and, and great to share and, and good for SNCs to, to listen to because if it is something that you're doing and it's authentic and you're just sharing your own experiences, it's, there's probably an element of ease that comes with that and it goes to show you can get some pretty good comes with it as well, which is always nice. So I appreciate you, you giving us an insight and yeah, why you started it and, and how you go about managing it with your current workload in, in elite sport. Moving to the last few questions, mate, in your 
work life? What are your pet peeves? Is there anything that fires you up, makes you angry? They're probably all things that I used to do, to be honest. It was not being organized, <laughs> not having foresight and, and seeing the big picture and taking, taking shortcuts with things, not being thorough in the preparation and, and how, how the job is approached. Luckily, they're not things I necessarily have to worry too much about here at the Broncos. We've got a really good team in the performance department, our coaching department. So there have been times in other organizations where some, some things like that have annoyed me a little bit. But uh, yeah, just getting your ducks in a row, I think that's, that's the important one. Yep. And favorite way to spend a day off? Puppy at the moment. So we go down to the coffee shop in the morning with the puppy, go for a walk or get down to the beach. And then, yeah, I don't know, have a, have a barbecue in the afternoon, something like that. I like to hang out with, hang out with the wife and enjoy the simple things in life. So nothing, I haven't got any really exciting hobbies, but yeah, just taking it easy, mate. That's, that, that's more my style, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, mate. In a, what would be normally a pretty, productive and busy schedule i imagine taking it easy and recharging makes a lot of sense we yeah, sort of had had plenty of stimulation by the end of the work day <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah need to stitch off a bit um we're sort of yeah halfway through 2023 what are you sort of most excited about for the rest of the year what's on the horizon for you Every, everything that we're doing here at the at the club is what excites me mate i think we builded built a lot of momentum last last year the, the club is heading in the right direction and we had a cracking pre preseason, and and the boys started the year fantastically. So I'm just excited to see what the what the team can do in the next half of this season, and just ride that journey with with, with the squad and see what we can make of this year. Yeah, fantastic, mate! All, all the best with it. For for those that want to follow up and perhaps ask some questions or check out your programs online, what's your website? And yeah, where, where's the best place to get in contact from a social media point of view? Yeah, I mean Instagram is probably the the main platform that i use so it's just my full name nathan kiley with an underscore at the end and yeah if you want to buy a program off me or something like that there's there's a link in my bio there with with all sorts of different things whether that's some articles or or programs yeah, you'll find it all there very good yeah for those that driving perhaps listening to the podcast recording we'll add both those links in the show notes so it's easy for you guys to access and yeah well thank you again nate for jumping on really appreciate you sharing with us Everyone that's tuned in live, if you're tuned in halfway through, make sure to listen to the full episode that will live on our YouTube channel until we publish it on your favorite podcast app next Wednesday. Our next live chat will be with Lee Egger. That's on the June 1st at 3 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. So I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes yeah, game changes, whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, 
And I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever, as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.